I am actually from South Carolina. I graduated from the University of South Carolina with a public relations degree and moved to Texas right after I had graduated to go to Southwestern Baptist Seminary here in Fort Worth. Graduated from there with my master's in, in a Christian social work degree. About seven years ago, I came to Christ Chapel and started coming here, specifically um, met Shelley and then also began volunteering in our student ministry. Um, about five and a half years ago, a position opened up on staff in the student ministry, and so I joined the student ministry staff here at Christ Chapel, specifically the high school staff. I love students, still do. I volunteer with them, but about six months ago, I also had the opportunity to come over and be a part of the women's ministry staff, and I'm loving that as well, and I'm excited to be here and share with you. There are many things I could tell you about myself, but the most important thing about me is this. I am the aunt of the two cutest kids on the planet. And so I brought pictures to prove to you that I was not lying. Austin is 19 months old and is my brother Robert's little boy and his wife Erin. Um, Owen is my sister Cindy's little boy. He was in an Easter egg hunt last week and turns one actually on April the 1st. Um, all my family's in South Carolina and so I love getting to see them and wanted you to know I wasn't lying. I do have the two cutest nephews on the planet. So that is a little bit about me. Today, however, we're going to be talking about Lydia. We meet Lydia at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. He heads over to Philippi, which is where we meet Lydia, but she's not from Philippi. She's from Thyatira, southeast of Philippi. She is from Asia. And as we meet her, we learn some things about her. She is a seller of purple goods. We see her as a businesswoman, probably a successful businesswoman. We also look at some things that probably indicate that she is a wealthy woman. Purple dye was the most expensive dye that you could have. She also had a house and a household, and certainly a house large enough to have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke come stay, so she's probably a wealthy woman. Sometimes coming with a successful businesswoman and some wealth, often we might can imagine she was a woman who was respected, perhaps a leader, Again, she has a household. We don't know what that household consists of. Perhaps she was widowed. Perhaps she had some children, but she has a family and a household. And as I began to think about Lydia, I started to think about her life. And it wasn't too hard, to be honest, for me to imagine her sitting here among you. Many of you from um, are successful, gifted, very talented women, some in the business field, some not. You have households. We certainly are in a country that is a very wealthy country, and many of us have money. And it wasn't hard for me to imagine here sitting here among us and thinking about Lydia, really, in a lot of ways, having lived the American dream. And I started to think about her life, and I started to think, here's Lydia, who seems to have at least a rare vantage point, what we would say is enough. It's the American dream. It's what she's going for. And yet the question that our life seems to ask to me is, is that enough? I mean, is that enough? Is the American dream, is that, is that it really enough? And I started to think about people in our culture and still how today we see many people valuing. And it's not bad things. God often gives them to us to enjoy. It's okay. Um, but we see the press for power and wealth and success, and fame, and beauty. We can certainly see that today. It's not hard for us to imagine. And I began to think about, you know, is, is that enough today? Is that enough? And I thought about, and again, not at all picking on them, because we struggle with things, and it could be us, but the number of people I've read about from 
significant places in our society that have struggled with significant things over the past six months to a year. Be it people that had it all. They have the American dream. They've got the success. They've got the fame. They've got this push that says we're going for. And yet they are perhaps in alcohol and drug rehab or arrested for DUI or in jail or struggling with prostitution. We've all been watching, sadly, the former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer, um, seeming to have the power, seeming to have the it that we all seem to be about. Or some of the people we read are out from Hollywood, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Kiefer Sutherland, Gary Collins, Owen Wilson, Heath Ledger, the names could go on. People who are telling us that though they've got this American dream, this thing we think is the it. Some way, it's not enough, is it? Lydia didn't think it was enough. And what we see today tells us it's not enough. And even though Perhaps we don't fall into those categories, perhaps we do. I think we all have to admit that there's that part of us internally that's pushing for something to be our it, that pushes us for success or beauty or materialism or money, that thing within our heart that we're going for to be our it. And we find that it isn't enough. So the question we're going to answer today is, what is it that's enough? And how do we get it? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Lydia's life in Acts chapter 16. I'll pick up in verse 12, and we're going to read about her. Again, we said Paul meets her in Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. It says, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, what this place of prayer probably is, is that if there was a city that did not have 10 Jewish men in it, you could not have a formal Jewish place of worship, couldn't have a synagogue. But you were allowed, if there were not these 10 Jewish men, for there to be a place of prayer for people to be able to go to pray. So we're finding in Philippi probably not very many Jews in this group of women out at this place of prayer. And it says, And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She knew something of the true Yahweh God, not of Jesus, but of God. And then we see this amazing part of this verse where it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We're going to look a whole lot at verse 14 where it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now what was said by Paul we don't specifically see here written. But if you were able to do your homework, um, you were able to look back through pretty much a lot of what we know that Paul has said up to this point. Galatians is the only letter that he's written. That's the book of the Bible. Lynn has been teaching us about that for six weeks. So we are aware of the message that's there. And we look back through. I gave you some examples of some verses to look back through through the book of Acts to see what Paul had been talking about. And it was pretty easy to see. Paul basically had one message. He had the message of the gospel. He had the message of Easter. Galatians 6.14 talks about this message. It's the message of the cross. It is the message of a God who in his great love and mercy sent his own son to come down for people that didn't know him, didn't believe in him, didn't care, and didn't want to follow him. And he sent his son to die on a cross to pay what I should have paid 
and then he raised him from the dead. And for all who believe, he gives them that amazing righteousness and an opportunity to know our Jesus. This is the message that Paul has been speaking up to this point, And we certainly see the message here is the message of the gospel. I want to talk about how this message applies to at least three categories. The first one is pretty easy to see. We see how this message applies to Lydia, to the person that's not a believer, to an unbeliever, to the person that doesn't know Jesus. We see that this message is absolutely intended for them as Paul brings it to her. Something else I see, the second type of person, and this may be interesting, I think this message of the cross, if you think back, Paul is writing Galatians, and Paul is a believer. He knows who Jesus is, and yet in verse 14 he says, may it never be that I would boast in anything except the cross. There's something about this message of the cross that is still relevant and still important, not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer as well. This message of Easter is not something that we as believers ever get over. It's something that is still intended for us. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I want to acknowledge that this is not a message that we are now done with if we're here and we now believe in Jesus. The third thing I think is so great in these verses, the third category for whom this message was intended, and I just loved looking at this, is the message for a continent and for the world. Here's what I mean. Paul, as we read in verses 6 through 10 in Acts, wants to go somewhere, and the Spirit says, nope, you're not going to Asia. I want you to go over here to Macedonia. And it's Paul's first step, first missionary journey into the continent of Europe. The Spirit very clearly directs him here, and he takes this message. The the message may have already gotten there. Pentecost certainly had happened. The gospel message was spreading. We don't know for sure that Lydia was the very first convert on the continent of Europe, but we do know she's the first one that Paul takes the message to that we have a name for. And we see this message that was given to a small group of people beginning to now permeate and go out to the continent of Europe. And if you think about it, historically, Europe has been a hub of Christianity that has had significant influence for the name of Jesus Christ around the world. The number of missionaries that have gone out from that to share the gospel literally all around the world. Europe is a very significant continent when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on this seemingly innocent Sabbath day, we have this picture of the gospel permeating into a continent that was going to influence the world for the name of Jesus Christ. And we've got Lydia's name attached to it. Interestingly enough, and actually sadly enough, I couldn't help but in thinking about the continent of Europe and the influence that it has had. I don't know if you're aware much about spiritually what's going on in Europe right now, but it is a very, very dark place right now. It is a place that has not... um, seeking and following Christ and having the influence that it once was. Though you will have different opinions of this, and I understand I'm reading some opinions, there are a few things I've read that I thought might interest you about the continent of Europe. One one thing I read said this, in measuring Christian growth over the last century, Europe's rate was the lowest in the world. They are the toughest people on earth to reach with the gospel. Additionally, about a year ago, like we said, I was on student ministry staff, and we take our high school students on mission trips. 
And frankly, we've taken students for years to Guatemala and the trip's just gotten too big. So I, at that time, started to think, okay, Lord, we've got to develop another trip. Where am I going to take them? And I thought, you know, if I've got 14 to 18-year-olds who are impressionable and I, I, I want to influence them and take them to a place that's going to be significant for the gospel in their lifetime, where would we go? What's strategic? Where might missions be going? Not that I know for sure, but where might it be going so I can take them to a place to give them a heart for something that perhaps they can use to, in, that they will be people that influence that area for the rest of their lives. So just in my research about this, I emailed Mark Young, who's a missions professor over at Dallas Theological Seminary, and asked him the very same thing that I just asked you. Interestingly, here was his answer. Again, you will find those who disagree, but I thought you might like to hear his answer. In my opinion, he says, we will see the missions community turning its attention again to Europe. Although Christian historically, Europe today is the most secularized place on earth with thousands of towns and cities in which there is no credible testimony of the gospel. Most European countries have a very low growth rate among evangelicals. In Poland, for example, evangelicals make up less than 0.1% of the population of 38 million. I think ministry in Europe, particularly to students, will be very strategic. It's interesting as we look at this continent that Paul is taking, at least for his sake, the gospel to for the first time. It's a place that the gospel needs to go back to again. I thought it was very interesting Again, that transitions us well into our next point. We've got this gospel message for believers, for unbelievers, for a continent, and really for the world. What's the response to that message? We saw Europe for a while seem to respond positively, and for a while, at least as of late, it hasn't responded real well to that message. So what is the response to this message, to this message that is enough? As we go back to verse 14 about Lydia, we see the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The response of the unbeliever to this message, Lydia's response is what? Pay attention. Pay attention. Just believe what you've heard. And maybe you're here visiting women in the Word, or you've been around the church for a while, just as Lydia knew something of who Yahweh God was, but she didn't know the story of Jesus. And at this Easter season, if that message is something that you have never paid attention to in your heart, even while I'm talking, seems to be going, huh, I get that in a way I never have before. Just pay attention to and believe what it is, and you will have, even sitting there right now, that which is enough. The message for the, the response to the message for the unbeliever is to pay attention. That response really is the same, though, for us as Christians. Our response to the gospel message is to pay attention. Hebrews chapter 2 very clearly tells us this. It's the same Greek word that was translated pay attention here in Acts. shows up again in Hebrews chapter 2. And it says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's something that this gospel message to that regardless of how long we live, we need to continue to pay attention to. And so I want us to look at several things that can draw our attention away from this. 
What are some things that can get our attention off of Jesus, that can get our attention off of the real gospel, and how can we put it back? The first thing will not sound new to you. Lynn's been talking about it for six weeks, so I'm not going to go into an immense amount of depth. But one way we can even now be distracted is when we begin to misunderstand the purpose of our works. The purpose of our works is not to save us. The purpose of our works is not to make us right with God. What is the purpose? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our works are a response to what Christ has done for us, not a means to begin a relationship with him. Look back at Lydia with me for a moment as we think about this, just one element of this. I love this about Lydia. We see Lydia in verse 14 pay attentioning to what Paul says to this gospel message, and then immediately in verse 15 we have what? She was baptized. Her whole household was as well. So there's perhaps she went and shared the gospel with them or brought them. There's some, uh, you know, evangelism going on. She's maybe pulling others to be, to hear about Jesus. She's baptized. There's perhaps concern for other believers. She's sharing the gospel immediately. And then it says she urged us, which that word can actually mean begged. I love that. She's begging. She's begging Paul and the rest of them to what? Come stay at her house. This woman of immense hospitality. Immediately this happens. And I thought, you know, it's interesting. And I'm not picking on these things because I've done all of them. Seriously. She didn't. Uh, go to an evangelism training class. She didn't take a spiritual gifts test, all of which are great things I've done, and I'm going to do them again. Something happens. God opens her heart, changes her. And you know why I think she did this? You know why I think she was baptized? Perhaps there was evangelism and hospitality. She wanted to. She just wanted to. I'm going to pick on someone that does not know that I'm getting ready to pick on them. It's Michael Watson. I know she would be embarrassed, so I didn't tell her ahead of time. Um, she's the one, you know, the yellow things that have been on your table. We've been talking about collecting things for the missionaries, bringing some things for our women missionaries serving around the world. Well, this is Michael's thing, just so you know. And the first time Michael came to talk to me, we were in the garden room. She just talked on and on about this how excited she was, how much she loved doing it, how much she loved the missionaries, how much she wanted to be doing this. She sends me long emails, which are so fabulous, updating me on what is going on here with these missionaries. I think if I were to walk to Michael today and say, Michael, I have a million dollar check to give you and you can keep that and use it just for you. But if you take it, you're never going to be able to do this whole women's missions thing again. You can't be involved in it ever again. Do you know what I think she would do? I think she would rip up the check and look at me as if I'd lost my mind. Michael does this because she loves it. And I think for every believer, God has put within you gifts and passions and things that you love to do for the kingdom. And he wants you to do it. And it's like a million dollar check to you that you get to do these things. It's not some means to make God like you. It's like God's given you this gift of what you get to do. What is it that you love to do? What is it about following Jesus that you just love? And everything about following Jesus is not easy. I'm not saying that, and I will never say that. 
There are many things that I have to obey that I don't want to do and it's hard, but not everything is. Some things about serving and following Jesus I just love to do. One other thing about Lydia I think we need to consider for all of you who are, many of you so much like Lydia, have been given a lot of intelligence, a lot of gifting, a lot of opportunity, a lot of resources. Can I just say that we are a church that's been given a lot? And we are a church that I think literally, by God's grace, his power through his resources, should be, can literally impact countries, impact continents, and impact the world. We are a place that has been given a lot. And as you think about what you love, I want you to think big. Do not be afraid to think. This passion that I have, how can this be a part of literally impacting the world for the name of Jesus Christ? The purpose of our works is a response, and our works are a gift and something that we get to do. One other thing that can distract our attention from the true gospel, from the focus on Christ, is this. It's the reality of our culture as well as our own hearts. The message of our culture in many ways is not believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, follow him. I know that's not a shock to anyone in the room. And we all have to admit that sometimes our heart prompts us to love the right things, sometimes our heart prompts us to love the wrong things. And my heart is quite capable of leading me away from loving Jesus and following Jesus and in believing the gospel. The message my heart sends me and the message our culture sends me is not always the right one. And uh, we're going to actually look a little bit about at that more when we talk about Priscilla next week. But I want to talk about specifically as we think about our own hearts and this desire to have the it, the that which is enough. Because that push within me seems very real and I, I didn't know how to phrase this so I'm going to read what I phrased and then hopefully be able to explain it. Um, oftentimes we find our functional salvation in the wrong place. Now here's what I mean by that. Now I believe who Jesus is. I know who Jesus is. I know he's my life. He's my peace. He's my freedom. He's my reason to, to celebrate. He is everything. I understand that. I believe that. And there are a few moments that I actually live that. But there's a lot of times that I function as if something else is really going to save me. Something else is really going to make me feel right with God. Something else is going to give me life or joy or peace or whatever. Maybe it's um, beauty. Beauty. If I look a certain way, that'll make me feel right. It'll make me feel okay. That's what's really going to make me okay. Or success, achievement, control, power, security, all those things within us that push us. And again, it's not all bad. But when that becomes the thing that's going to make me okay, I am drifting away from what Jesus is and who Jesus is and trying to be okay with something else. And I don't know how many times it's going to take before I learn. It's not. When I think about things I wrestle with is security. I'll try to find my feeling of security in money or a job or in a spouse or who you marry or if my kids are okay. That's, that's what makes me feel secure and okay and right. And again, are, are those things bad? No. But is that, how does that compare to the security God gives me? Before I was born, he sent his son to die on a cross 
to save me from my sin. He gives me his spirit, which promises me and guarantees me I'm going to heaven. He promises to never leave me and to take care of me. Why would I go anywhere else for security? It makes no sense, but I do it. Or beauty. Who does not look in the mirror and see 87 things about yourself that you would like to change? (laughs) You know, I'm just... And if I don't feel like I look okay or weigh the right thing or wear the right thing or whatever, it just can make me feel like I'm all wrong with the world. It just blows my peace and my security and my joy for the whole day. Well, what is it about this gospel message that gives us beauty? The most ugly thing about me is my sin. And guess what God did with that? He put it on Jesus and he put it on a cross. And he took my yaki really gross, unbeautiful thing and takes Jesus' good deeds and righteousness and gives it to me. The beauty I have is from the gospel. It is from Jesus' cross and death and resurrection. It is from God working the Holy Spirit into my life, the fruit of that, the love, joy, peace, patience, all those things are beautiful. That quest is where beauty is. I get to look at my beautiful Savior who's the most delightful thing there is. Why in the world would I go anywhere else for beauty? But my culture and my heart many times pushes me to try to find that life and that peace and that hope and that salvation that only comes in the cross and in the gospel and the Easter message. Try to find it somewhere else. The last thing I want to mention, and I'm actually going to come back to it at the end, is um, circumstances and pain are things that can come sometimes distract our attention from what is true. And I, I don't know that that needs a whole lot of explanation. Again, I'm going to come back to it because it is in those times of pain. Sometimes it makes me want to run to God and sometimes I so want him to change it so bad and I'm so frustrated and I get tempted to get angry that it is like it is and it just hurts so bad I want to run anywhere else. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to get to the best part. Who is this story really about? Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul said. Who's this story really about? God. Paul would laugh at the story, at the thought of the story being about him. He's like, what? the story's not about me bringing a message. I'm the one who was persecuting the church that Jesus had to come out of nowhere on the road to Damascus and get my attention. Jesus is the one that died on the cross for me. This story is not about me. Lydia would say the same thing. This story is about me. No way. Who's the story about? The story is about God. I um, am looking at this. I know there's some questions that can come with this whole Lydia, the Lord, pay attention thing. And I was reading in John MacArthur's book, 12 Extraordinary women. He talks about Lydia in here. And he explains this in a way better than I could instead of trying to. I'm just going to read what he said. As we think about God and what he is doing and how he's at the center of this interaction with Lydia. John MacArthur says Lydia, her heart was truly open. She was a genuine seeker of God. But notice Luke, who's the author of Acts. Notice Luke's whole point. It was not that Lydia opened her own heart and ears to the truth. Yes, she was seeking, but even that was because God was drawing her. She was listening, but it was God who gave her ears to hear. She had an open heart, but it was God who opened her heart. 
lot of people imagine that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is somehow has him somehow forcing people against their wills to believe. Don't imagine for a moment that there's any kind of violent force or coercion involved when God draws people to Christ. Grace doesn't push sinners against their wills toward Christ. It draws them willingly to him by first opening their hearts. It enables them to see their sin for what it is and empowers them to despise what they formerly loved. It also equips them to see Christ for who he really is. Someone whose heart has been opened like that will inevitably find Christ himself irresistible. Luke's description of Lydia's conversion captures it beautifully. The Lord simply opened her heart to believe, and she did. The center of this story is our Jesus. I have a friend that works at a church in the West Coast, and she was kind of grieved and was real humble about it, but emailed a few of us, and their church was sending out um, an advertisement for Easter, inviting um, people from their community to come. And the tagline on this postcard was, Easter, it's all about you. And she emailed and she said, does that strike you as wrong? Now don't get me wrong. We get forgiveness, we get life, we get joy, we get peace. But listen to Galatians and tell me what you think about this possibility. Is it all about us? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, Christ gave himself for our sins, to deliver us, Christ is the one delivering us, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The story of Easter, the story of the cross, of the death and resurrection, is not the story primarily of us or of Lydia or of Paul. It's a story of God. It's God's sovereignty. It's God's love sending his son to a cross. It's God's anger and wrath being seen. It's his mercy and grace. The message of Lydia, the message of Paul, the message of Easter is primarily... A story about God. Sometimes I think I can miss that. I become so intent in the follow part of follow me that I forget who it is that God's called me to follow. I get to follow Jesus. The one who Paul says he's willing to lose everything for. And this is the crazy thing. If we try to find our enough, our it in this American dream, guess what? We end up empty. But if like Paul says in Philippians 3, we are willing to lose it all. To have Jesus, we get everything. We get the only thing that will ever be enough. I told you I was going to come back to the pain and circumstances part, and I'm going to end with this. Um, Like I said, I know in my life, pain and circumstances are those things that sometimes push you to God, and sometimes the pain is so great you just don't know what to do with it. One of those seasons in my life, as well as in some of yours, was when our Dear friend, my boss, David Phillips, a couple years ago, was killed in a car accident. He was my friend and boss. Um, I had the pain of losing a friend and boss, as well as doing a lot of his job responsibilities for a while. His dear friend, my dear friend, um, was his wife. I had her pain, the pain of the students, the pain of their parents, the pain of uh, the church staff, the pain of the student ministry staff. It's more like family and student ministries than it is coworkers. And when you work at a church, um, your life and your church and your work and your friends and your job and your family all are the same thing. When things are good, things are good. And when things aren't good, things aren't good. And this was a season whereby things were not good. And I know that I have a tendency to, in hard things, I will shut down and take care of everyone else, which is good. 
but I was very intentional about trying to along the way take a few moments for me and the Lord to be together so that three years down the road I wouldn't just end up crashing because I hadn't really worked through my own heart with the Lord. So uh, there was a day about a month after Dave died, I had been at his graveside when he was buried, and about a month later I went back um, to his graveside, and for whatever reason that day was particularly difficult for me. I stood at his graveside and just sobbed. Not the kind of sob that, that makes you feel better at the end kind of sob, not the kind of grieve with hope kind of grieve, the kind of grieve that uh, is not fun. And the kind of pain, it was just the pain of all of it that I couldn't seem to get out from under, and I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to talk to God, and finally I was just like, I'm leaving. And I thought, well, I know how to handle this and not experience that again. I'm just never going back there. Well, I'm a little too competitive for that, and the Lord kind of began to work on my heart, and I thought, what was it that was so difficult that day for me? I mean, my head knows some things, but my heart could not get over the magnitude of the wretchedness of all the pain that I had seen. And over a period of months, God and I talked about that and kind of wrestled through that, and it took a while, but about seven months later, in October, I went back and did not go alone. If any of you who know me, I took the only thing I would take with me. I took my Bible. As a matter of fact, this Bible, Dave had in fact given me this Bible, and I walked back out to his grade side, and this was different. It wouldn't mean there weren't, there were some tears, but they were different kind of tears, and it wasn't um, that God said, oh, the pain really wasn't that bad. Oh, it really was that bad. I'm not saying the pain isn't bad. I'm not going to argue you that. But as I stood beside his grave, my heart had begun to see the reality of the fullness of truth. My heart was believing, indeed, Dave was not there. He's happier than he'd ever been. He was with his Jesus. That God was being good and sovereign with us. And the depth of pain that I saw and felt and experienced at every corner and turn in my life, that magnitude of pain was easily, because of the power of our Lord Jesus at the cross, easily overcome. And I stood at his graveside and I read out loud these verses by myself from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And I'll read them to you. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, the end is the particularly good part. I'll tell you when that's coming. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be saved. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass the saying that is written. This is the part. Listen to this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some days following Jesus feels like a million-dollar check, and some days it feels like he's asking you to take up his cross, your cross, and follow. On either day, on either day, the only thing that will ever, ever be enough is Jesus. The Easter message, the gospel, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. It's the only thing that will ever be enough. Instead of me praying my words, I just want you to, I'm going to read 
is a prayer of us communicating our heart to the Lord as we're here at Easter, as we as believers also have the message of the cross. Praise God for that. Um, I'm just going to read these last few verses again, and if you would just make this your heart cry to the Lord as you communicate these thoughts to him this Easter. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But O God, thanks be to you, because of the victory you give us through our precious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Kathy. I just really have one announcement um, and a praise that you are all here today.